Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much. This is a really fun thing that Charlie and I get to do today because normally we're recording our podcast called The Nerdcast, the 2016 Nerdcast, in a tiny little room in Roslyn, Virginia. And we thought, well, let's do one on stage. Let's talk to some real people who are coming to the convention. And so this is a real treat for us. And we're very, very lucky to have with us Sarah Huckabee. And you'll hear from David Pepper in a few minutes. Um, Thank you for joining us here at the Politico Hub. We're excited about this space. We're excited about all the things that we're doing here in Cleveland. Thank you for being here in the audience and for everybody who's watching via live stream. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast will also go up on our regular Nerdcast website as well as on iTunes, as it always does. So Sarah, thank you very much for being with us. You bet. Thank you. I'm just excited to be part of a Nerdcast. I'm usually not (laughs) smart enough to get to be uh, put into the nerd group. So that's a big moment for me. Fake it till you make it. Charlie, you start, please. Okay. uh, So Sarah, I have to ask, this is one of the most fascinating things of this week is hearing Paul Manafort and hearing uh, RNC Chairman Reince Priebus talk about Donald Trump's electoral map. I'm sort of a map geek myself. And so here's the kinds of states they're talking about. They're talking about winning Connecticut. They're talking about winning Oregon. They're talking about winning Washington. This is on top of discussions about winning New York, California, Maryland. Jersey. Jersey, too. I mean, this is like the, you know, that's the heart of blue state of America. And I want to get your sense of like, is that real or is this a head fake or are people serious about this? Well, I think as we're seeing uh, the numbers shift and Hillary Clinton's dropping down, Donald Trump's moving up all over the country. Some of those states are becoming competitive. Uh, Certainly, we're going to have to wait until the dust settles from the conventions because so much changes over the next two weeks. Most uh, parties will get big bumps after their convention, after their vice presidential nominees are announced. So after the dust settles, we'll certainly look at the states where we feel we can be competitive. And I think a lot of those states may be on the board. I think one of the other places you're going to see Donald Trump play that Republicans in the past couple of cycles that haven't done as well as the Rust Belt, places like Pennsylvania, where you've got so many manufacturing jobs that have been lost, and he's really speaking and tapped into that American worker. And so I think that that's a really big place for him to play and a place he's going to do extremely well that we haven't seen Republicans in the last couple cycles do that well. Some of the latest round of swing state polls have shown a real tightening in this race in a way that's been surprising to Democrats. And yet when you dive into some of the crosstabs, you'll see that Donald Trump is still struggling quite a bit. Um, Here in Ohio, for example, he's struggling with women, for example, by a huge margin, as well as with the African-American population. 
Does Donald Trump, does the team have a strategy to close that gap, or is it not? Is it a, is it territory they're willing to forfeit? I don't think there's any territory we're willing to forfeit. I mean, our goal is to go after every single vote that we can possibly get. I think there's a reason you're seeing people like Melania Trump featured last night, Trump's daughter Ivanka, who I think is far and away one of his best surrogates and most powerful surrogates, that I think really tap into not just the women vote, but who Donald Trump really is at his core. And they get a chance to humanize him in a way that nobody else can, that women are able to connect with in an emotional way. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that this week and as we move forward into the general election. Uh, one thing that I'm, I'm really curious to ask you about is, is this. You have had this. Uh, you have a scary look. I know who does. I was wondering the same. <laughs> scary question I think my coming. mic may be going out right now. So No, it's, it's more because I'm, I'm excited to ask and, and hear what you have to say. Um, you've, you've had sort of a historic front seat to two great presidential campaigns, your dad's. One turned and, out a little better than the right, other. And Trump. <laughs> And so I wonder to talk a little bit about the, the two campaigns' similarities. Are there any uh, contrasts? And maybe even, you know, having, having spent a lot of time at your father's side, campaigning with him, knowing uh, stylistically what kind of politician he is, can you talk a little bit about the differences between the two and any similarities that you might see? Yeah, there's, I, I think there's actually a lot more similarities than you would probably imagine. They're both um, very unscripted and very... Uh, kind of off the cuff. My dad doesn't use notes. He doesn't speak with prepared text most of the time. And so I think that a lot of times you get a much more natural, raw authenticity from both of them. And I think that's one of the reasons that Donald Trump was so successful this cycle and one of the reasons my dad was so successful in 2008. Because they had that authenticity, they were able to really tap into the heartland of America. Again, back to that those American workers, manufacturing type people. Um, and I think that really came through on the campaign pain trail and you got to see a lot more of that from both of those candidates. Um, I think one of the other things they talked about were kind of the struggles of middle America. They weren't talking necessarily to, as my dad likes to call it, they talk more to flyover country than the coastal sides. And so that was another big similarity that I think I saw in both of the campaigns. But in terms of the actual operation and the individual, they're obviously very different people. One of the things that we like to do on NerdCast is get the story behind the stories and try to bring um, our listeners inside of campaigns. So we're not just talking about the numbers that Charlie loves to talk about. Well, we also bring in our correspondents and guests to talk about what it's really like on the inside. So tell us a little bit about what it is really like on the inside of Donald Trump's campaign as an advisor. How does he take advice and what do we sitting on the outside not understand about him? He, he actually takes in a ton of information and has the ability, he's extremely bright, has the ability to process a lot of information very quickly. Um, his closest advisors are certainly his family. Um, they know him best. He trusts them most. And so that's the kind of core team that he insulates himself with, that he talks with on the daily basis, uh, probably even the hourly basis a lot of times. And that's certainly, I think, one of the best influences on him as well. Um, he's got a great team that he's put together around him. He listens to a lot of uh, kind of guys that have been there in some ways, the, the Chris Christie's of the world who have been part of the political process and has become a real ally and a confidant for him and somebody that I think he is very open with and has the ability to sit down and really take sound advice from. We hear so much that he values loyalty over experience. Mm -hmm. Is that true? 
I think so. I think you can see that in um, since day one, the campaign, he had a very, very small team and he didn't expand quickly, even when, you know, he started winning states. Some people think that was a mistake, but I don't. Um, he still became the nominee and he was able to do that with a smaller amount of resources. And I think it allowed him to still be himself and do that because he had such a small team. But those were people that were very loyal to him, that a lot of people on the outside looked in and said, oh, these guys aren't the experts. They'll never be able to do it, and especially not with a guy like Donald Trump. And they proved him wrong time and time again. And usually that's the case in a lot of campaigns. You're not a big deal until you win a big mm -hmm. race. And so this is their moment to kind of be a big deal in a lot of places. But one of the biggest knocks on that campaign is the inability to maintain message discipline. And you're laughing because you probably live with that and tear your hair out over, over this. But I mean, here we are on the second day of the convention. And what are we talking about? Like, you, about yes, about the day one, the floor fight and the cribbed speech. Um, you've worked on a, on a campaign that operated, you know, obviously it was much more sort of seat of the pants and grassroots when you first started, in, when your dad first started in, in the OA campaign, but then it became more professionalized. Can you talk a little bit about why does that happen? Why are we talking today about everything but his pending nomination? I think that's probably a better question for you guys, because I'd love to talk about how great I thought Melania Trump did last night. I hate that we're focusing on a couple dozen words instead of the th several thousand words that she spoke at convention last night. I think a lot of times in politics we get so lost into the weeds, and the people out in middle America, they really don't care about that kind of stuff. They want to know, are they going to have a job? Are we going to live in a safe country? How's education look for their kids? Those are the things they want to hear about, and I think if we could push to talk about that more, I, I think people would be a lot but, happier but moving someone, away from all of that. As someone who's a communicator, though, I mean, uh, it, it, do you think it's good practice to just sit there and, and, and pull the, you know, today, if you look at a lot of the surrogates, it's like, who was the guy in the, the first Gulf War, or Baghdad Bob, just holding the line? Oh, there's no bombs raining on Baghdad. Nothing's going on. Everything's fine. There, were no, there was no cribbing. I mean, it's pretty clear that, you know, that lines were borrowed, and, and so there's all these tortured lines out there. 93% of it was real. And <laughs> I, I mean, doesn't that frustrate you as a professional communicator? It, yeah, I mean, I certainly think there's some frustration there, but I think the bigger frustration, again, is that that's what we're talking about. Instead of the bigger issue and the real heart of her speech, I think it was such a passionate speech and such a uh, in-depth look at who Donald Trump really is on a personal level, and that's being completely overlooked today. And so I, that's my biggest frustration is that that's what's being lost. Let's talk about tonight and tomorrow. Tonight's the roll call vote. So this is a, an important moment. We're hearing some stuff about a little bit of shenanigans that might be played down on the floor, but I think everybody um, will concede that Donald Trump is going to emerge as the nominee. And then tomorrow night, we've got a really interesting speaker lineup. Among them, Ted Cruz. Now, there's some bad blood there, okay? <laughs> Donald Trump has said some mean things, okay? <laughs> Ted Cruz called Donald Trump a serial philanderer and a pathological liar and utterly amoral, and Donald Trump has had his fair share of zingers. If he were to get the Cruz endorsement, how would that be received in Trump Tower? Uh, you know, again, I think we're going after every single American vote in the country, and we'd love to have Ted Cruz get on board. Uh, but what I think we'll most likely see is more of an attack against Hillary Clinton. That's certainly uh, a common enemy that all Republicans can get behind, and there's certainly a unification in that thread, and I think that's the probably lane that Ted Cruz will swim in tomorrow night. Your dad, if he were at this moment entering a night where the roll call vote were about to hand him the nomination, 
What do you think the general election would look like in comparison to what we're about to see in a Trump versus Clinton general? Um, that's a tough question. Do you mean if they changed the roll call vote? And no, I'm in? saying oh, if he was if, the if Mike Huckabee had gotten here okay. to this point, he were about to be the Republican nominee legitimately. Well, um, I, I mean, I think there's a, a big contrast there, but there's also a really interesting story. You've got two people that came out of Arkansas. My dad also grew up. Uh, I mean, Bill Clinton grew up in Hope, as did my dad. You've got this small town of 10,000 people, and you have two prominent politicians that come from there. So I think there's kind of an interesting story that you might see unfold on the convention floor and be part of the big moment like that. Uh, in terms of the, the makeup of the election, certainly my dad taps into the social conservative base of the party, and so I think that would be a much probably bigger focus uh, for him in some place that you might see more attention paid to um, in his process. Do you think there would be less of a feeling of um, uncertainty and disunity? I don't see that there is disunity. I think, you know, we have a saying in the South, just because some people eat their soup louder doesn't mean it tastes better. I think just because we've got a few people in the crowd that are really loud and trying to make some noise, I don't think that that's a really good indicator of what's taking place across this country. I mean, you have to remember Donald Trump more, won more votes in a Republican primary against a really incredible field. It's not just that he won more votes, but he did it in a crowded primary with 17 candidates. And I would say 17 of the most qualified candidates that we've ever seen in a Republican primary. And so to do that and pretend like the party isn't united behind him is pretty crazy, in my opinion. Do you think there's a role in the Trump cabinet for your dad or for yourself? Certainly not for myself in the cabinet. I don't know that uh, I would be deemed qualified, but I'm pretty happy living in, in Little Rock these days with, with my kids and uh, just trying to keep our heads above the water with nope. three little ones. What about your dad? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think that's a question you'd have to ask Donald Trump, but I certainly think um, there's probably any position he would certainly be qualified. I'm obviously biased. I thought he'd make a really great president, too. So, Charlie, last question to you. Okay, l let me piggyback on, on something Kristen just said about uh, Ted Cruz. I mean, obviously, Ted Cruz, you know, we're, we're all eagerly waiting his remarks uh, tomorrow night. But whether it's Ted Cruz or Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan or even Rick Perry last night, they've all said such tough stuff about Donald Trump. Rick Perry was somebody who called him a cancer of conservatism. I mean, we could just go down the line. What do you tell your friends and your colleagues in private? Because I know they must take <laughs> you aside and say, okay, what is the real deal? What is this guy like? And how is it you describe him? And how do you make that sale to all these folks that have a tremendous amount of skepticism and in some cases, real animus towards Donald Trump? Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to see Donald Trump o over the last year, even before I was part of the campaign, uh, in the behind-the-scenes way. And there's something that is really unique uh, about the way that he is a very humble person that you don't get to see on the big stage. Humble? I know. <laughs> I know. You're rolling your eyes particularly in the relationship that he has with his kids. I think it's probably one of the things that. that I would love to see displayed in a much bigger way. You see a guy just kind of fall apart in the presence of his children. And that is something that when my friends and people ask, especially when I first came on board, like, how did you, you know, get there? Well, getting to see that interaction, um, you know, at debates and all the big cattle call events, the staffs are all backstage interacting with one another, and there's a certain level of camaraderie 
camaraderie and you get to see things that everybody else doesn't get to see and so over the last year and particularly over the last couple months since I've been officially part of the campaign and been in smaller more private intimate settings you get to see that side of him and so that's usually the part I talk about. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Great to be here. All right. Thanks. Um, we're going to welcome David Pepper up. He is the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. Uh, let me start by asking, uh, and tell me if this, con this conventional wisdom or consensus is, is true uh, about nationally and also about Ohio. I think the, the conventional wisdom, or at least the consensus about the way the campaign is unfolding, is that Donald Trump is really struggling in terms of ground game, field organization, um, and Hillary Clinton is light years ahead, uh, and many of the Democratic state parties are light years ahead of where the Republican parties are because the, maybe the National Party hasn't delivered uh, on its promises, the RNC's promises. Uh, is that an accurate assessment, and what is evidence of it do you see on the ground in Ohio, if that's true? So my sense is uh, that that is true, and we're not, we certainly don't walk around the state overconfident, um, but, but maybe a couple things uh, led to that. First, and I'll just mention my own case, I mean, I, I became chair in January 15 after a terrible, terrible cycle in 14. Mm -hmm. So I came in uh, dedicated to trying to figure out why we had lost so badly in 14 and how do we fix that. So you might say we had a little extra motivation to rebuild and get our act together. So one of the things that we've decided to do in, our, in Ohio is over the last 10 years, uh, one of our problems has been we have basically waited to the, for the winner of the presidential primary to build our infrastructure after the primary ends. And that's been great because we've won the elections 8 and 12. The problem with that approach is that means that they end up building it predominantly or entirely for the presidential campaign. And then the day after the election, it disappears. So our goal was, if we're going to build an infrastructure as a state party that allows us to win in 16 and 18, we shouldn't just wait for the presidential campaign to build it for us. We should build a lot of it ourselves. And then once the presidential primary is over, we basically merge it with the presidential. We win in November, but the benefit is we keep it for later. So one thing we've done is we actually started building our field effort with 30 field staff last October. Mm -hmm. Long before we even knew who the primary winner was going to be, we, we used our fundraising, our funds to do it. We dedicated to win local mayor's races and other races all around the state last year. So in a way, we all, we, even before you talk about Donald Trump, we had a big head start. And since the primary is over, the Clinton campaign and the DNC have only, have only built upon what we already started. So we started far earlier than traditionally. And then we now see Donald Trump just doesn't seem to believe in organizing. I mean, he's got... Well, he's relying on the RNC. R right, but here's the problem. One of the, one, of the, um, one of the issues, if you're really organizing a ground game, the a key to it is that the state party and the campaign and the DNC, in our case, are working together, but especially the campaign and the state party. You have to have that cooperation. So if you look at the primary, Donald Trump doesn't seem to have believed much in data or no. polling or organizing. I think that's why Cruz would win at the end if it was close, because he was more organized. So Trump already doesn't believe in it, but here in Ohio especially, I mean, given what happened yesterday, if you don't have a relationship with your state party, or in this case the governor who is the leader of the state party, it's going to be really hard to build a good ground game, because the essence of that ground game is that the state party and the campaign are actually really, in, you know, they trust one another 
you're willing to invest through the party and get things done. So we, we have, we've had a very good relationship. We started much earlier than normal. And Donald Trump doesn't seem to really believe in this stuff. And he also has this very, I mean, Kasich said the other day, I don't feel any obligation to help him win. I don't know where that was reported, but he said that. That's a pretty bad, that's bad news if your goal is to build an operation in Ohio. And so, so at a certain point you ask, well, who's going to build it? The party, if they don't believe they have an obligation to help Trump, isn't going to put a lot of time into it. Trump doesn't seem to really believe in it. If I were Trump, I wouldn't be comfortable sending John Kasich a bunch of money to build it. So I think they actually have a real trust issue when it comes to how do you even start building an operation. In the meantime, we have you know, over 100 staff on the ground every single day enlisting voters, getting people to register, et cetera. So we, feel, we do feel like right now that is one of the advantages in, an, in a close election which it always is in Ohio, that's how you win. Charlie, if jump in. Yeah, if, if you're Donald Trump, though, I mean, do you really need big data and uh, field organization? Here's a guy who broke every rule, every ironclad rule we know about politics. And if, you, if, if I'm the Trump campaign, you know, you could make an argument he ran really well in the Appalachian part of the state. He's poised to do really well in uh, the Mahoning Valley. I mean, right. there's lots of places he can win in this state. Uh, it's a state, as you mentioned before, rough year in 2014. And wasn't right. there kind of a butt-kicking in 2010, too. I mean, it's a state, you know, maybe that's arguable. Uh, I just remember a bunch of members of Congress right. was in their seats. So, I mean, you could almost see the case for why maybe he doesn't need the field organization. Well, well two things. One, people forget very quickly, he lost Ohio pretty badly as in the primary. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, this was not one of his good states. Uh, he didn't do very well here. Uh, so, you know, and, and a lot of people who showed up in that Republican primary weren't even Republicans. They were independents as well, who basically were, were told including by John Kasich, stop Trump. And the best way to do that is to show up and vote in the Republican primary against him. So he didn't do that well here. This was one of his worst results. The second thing is, you know, if you, even if you look at Donald Trump's record in that primary, and you guys know this better than I do, the ground game mattered to him in close primaries. I mean, every primary, it was sort of a tortoise in the hare. He's mm -hmm. way ahead. And then right at the end, if it was close like Iowa, Ted Cruz, who was organized, would catch him. Well, in the caucus states, right. he certainly it, it, did better. Right, but in, I think, um, I'm forgetting the states, but there were some primary states as well where if it was close in the polls, Cruz's organization did matter, and he would find votes that, did, that Trump didn't. Ohio's going to be close. I mean, of course, if it's a blowout, then, then this stuff doesn't matter. But if you're in a state like Ohio, if you know it's going to be close, I believe, and if, if he doesn't believe that, great. Let's, we'll organize, we'll get hundreds of staff, we'll register voters, and if he thinks, you know, just throw the Hail Mary and keep having meetings and blow them away so much it doesn't matter, I'm happy for him to, to take a risk with that, you know, a little bit uh, less proven Well, let's talk approach. really about why that is so close, though. Why is mm -hmm. it so close in Ohio right now? I mean, we're looking at poll after poll after poll that right. shows the situation narrowing in a way that is not favorable to your candidate. Right. right? What's behind those numbers and how, how at this point in the campaign, what, we're just starting the general, right. right? We're just officially starting the general. At this point in the campaign, what do Democrats have to do to take advantage of that organizational muscle that clearly Trump is not going to match? Right. What I would say is, I mean, I think that I think most polls have have Hillary Clinton with a you know single-digit lead and yeah within what, the margin uh, yeah I think that that's that's how it feels Ohio is close I think is demographically we're close I mean we we are we are in many ways sort of the perfect bellwether in, in you know the, the common as I think 
everyone from John Glenn to Ted Strickland have said, if you took the entire country and shrunk it to a state of the population of Ohio, if you, if you shrunk it to a $10 million, or a 10 million person state, it would just look exactly like Ohio. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, we are reflective of the country in all those ways. And whether it's, you know, big cities like Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, Youngstown, but then rural areas, you've got a little south, you've got a little Rust Belt, you got a little, you know, Columbus sort of feels like it's East Coast in a way. You've got all that, and it all adds up to being a very tight demographic state. So the bottom line is it's going to be close no matter what. But what I would say is 8 and 12 showed that at the end of the day, and this is why we go back to the ground game, if you're organized the way that Barack Obama organized the state and got the margins that he built up, you know, well over 200,000 vote margin of victory in Cuyahoga County. Uh, you know, uh, large margins in those cities, at the end of the day, it should outnumber the, the, you know, 70 or so out of 88 counties that Republicans win. We actually think at the end of the day, and you're seeing a lot of talk about security moms, suburban moms, uh, suburban women, we think that, that job one is to reconsolidate that Obama majority that won Ohio. And then we think we actually can make a run at uh, women uh, who, uh, particularly women, but also men as well, in the suburbs who look at Donald Trump and just think, like John Kasich is saying, like a number of Republican legislators are saying, we just can't vote for this guy. And so I think there's a, there's a, the opportunity is repeat what was done in 8 and 12, but actually make inroads in the suburbs that even Barack Obama could make. I think organization gets you so far, but then it's got to be message, right. right? And one of the most devastating things from Clinton's perspective in some of these latest numbers are the trustworthy numbers. Mm -hmm. Ohio specifically, 70% of your state's voters said Clinton is not honest or trustworthy. The number for Donald Trump was 64. 70 to 64 with a guy who fails every fact check. Right. Right? So how do you, in an environment with a candidate, with an, uh, an opposing candidate, with Donald Trump, who can go on stage, on television, and say anything, it's like right. a post-fact environment, right? right now right. you know how do you counter like that, that was not plagiarism those were common words yeah um you, i think we have to hit our message well in the convention i think we want to have a lot of uh, personal visits from the key key players in the campaign and obviously uh the, the uh, media message is important as well I, I think that hillary clinton can draw upon her decades of service uh, and, you know, battle the last, you know, year or so where a lot of the focus has been on, you know, the negative stuff. I th but here's the thing about Hillary Clinton that people forget. She has done, in the end of the day, she has done very well in Ohio. I mean, she, she had a big win here in 08. One of the reasons that she did so well here in, tw in the recent primary against Bernie Sanders is she didn't just, if you look at most maps, even of her wins, she won in the big blue counties. And in most states, even the ones she won, the states, she lost most of those red counties. In Ohio, she won almost every county. Hmm. So there's a deeper connection that she has, I think, through Bill Clinton's elections. She spent a lot of time here in 08. I was part of the, uh, the Southwest Ohio. I'm from Cincinnati, uh, Clinton effort. She was here a ton. It was only Ohio and Texas up for grabs in that week in 08. So she put a lot of time in here. So she has some deeper roots all around this state that I think, than I think she does in a lot of states. And I think in the end, they, despite those numbers, I hadn't seen those recent ones, you know, it's, it's been a, a tough you know, year on, on some of these issues when it comes to the emails. But I think big picture at the end of the day, I still believe when you ask the question, you know, who do you want within, you know, feet of the nuclear button? Who do you want as your commander in chief? Given how erratic 
and in some cases disturbing, you know, even a Donald Trump 60-minute speech is to watch, I think people will see she's the far more trustworthy when it comes to really being in charge of our country. Charlie, but, last question to you. Well, as, you, as you know, there's a uh, Hillary Clinton has a very big decision to make at the end of this week. We're coming in the home stretch of the uh, vice presidential uh, sweepstakes, and uh, by all indications, she'll make the decision on on Saturday. Either way, we'll know by the weekend. And I know you've got a home state dog in the hunt in Senator Sherrod Brown. Putting him aside, who would be the biggest asset in Ohio? Uh, if she were to name someone else other than Sherrod Brown, Who's the, who, who would bring the most? And maybe uh, maybe get yourself in trouble a little bit and handicap them for us. That's uh, a good question. My answer is Sherrod Brown. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get ahead of Hillary Clinton on this. So I, and Sherrod would be wonderful. I think if he doesn't get it, um, it's only because of the vacancy that would be left here that Kasich would would fill. I mean, I think I think that there are obviously a lot of important considerations. Um, someone who can hit the economic message hard in Ohio, uh, someone who can address the trade issues that are clearly uh, already in, in, in the air here, but also being raised by, um, by uh, Donald Trump. So I, I don't want to get ahead of them. I think uh, the truth is there are a lot of very good choices. Uh, we actually have seen uh, Richard Cordray's name come up some, and in, in, in he's he's, he was an attorney general here. He led the ticket in eight. By the way, on 10, you mentioned 10. 10 in Ohio was interesting because as bad as a year as it was around the country, uh, Cordray lost Ohio by only half a point, and Ted Strickland only lost by two points. So in a year where people got blown out all over the country, we actually had a pretty close result. And obviously one of the races to watch, uh, besides who they pick as vice president, is uh, the, the barn burner that will be the, the Senate race between now and November. And that's a race. So whenever I'm in D.C., I think people know Rob Portman so well that they always just assume he's going to win. But here in Ohio, honestly, the truth is Rob Portman just isn't that well known. I think you'll see poll after poll show he's one of the least known senators in his own state in the country. Ted Strickland is actually much better known and I think in the end of the day, I mean that's one reason I think it now is 25 million or more has already been spent outside money attacking uh, Ted Strickland. I think the other side including the Koch brothers know what a threat he is and especially with Donald, I mean think about Rob Portman's position right now. The top of his ticket is running around the country, uh, running around the state of Ohio saying Whoever negotiated these trade deals sure did a terrible job. Well, that's Rob Portman. He was the trade representative. He was the champion of CAFTA. He pushed for NAFTA. So uh, Rob Portman, it's already awkward for anyone to be on the same ticket as Donald Trump. But if you're Rob Portman, literally the top of your ticket is running a campaign saying you did a terrible job negotiating this trade deal. So I think Ted Strickland actually has a, has a lot of momentum, is better no one going to the race, and that's going to be an exciting one. I'm sure you'll be covering that all the way to the end. And David Pepper gets the last word. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you Thanks, everybody. for being thank here you. with us for our live Nerdcast. And thank you for listening. If you liked our show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us, and look for us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app. 